So I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 1, from verses uh, 26 to 28, and then we're going to jump to chapter 2, from 18 to 25. So chapter 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and all over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God has formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he, had, what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave name to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and to all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused, uh, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's reefs, and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and then become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the word of God. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, and welcome those who are here visiting for the first time. It's always a great joy um, uh, to welcome you. Um, my name is Andis, and I am uh, the pastor here at Grace Church. Um, thank you very much for uh, choosing um, uh, such an appropriate psalm, Jenny. And, and then thank you so much for uh, reading from, from Genesis. Um, yes, indeed, as we already heard today, Today we are starting a thematic series about God, marriage, sexuality, and church. And because it's the beginning of the series, we are going to have a bit more lengthy introduction. And so the overall talk today is going to be somewhat a bit lengthy. But I hope, I do hope that it's not going to be too heavy and we're going to be able to, to follow it. Uh, so, if you have been around Grace um, Church for some time, you would know that we normally go through um, the books of the Bible here on Sundays. Uh, we do that because um, the Holy Spirit was pleased to put the scriptures together like that for us. And um, God has revealed himself like that to us. So the exposition of scriptures is the bread and butter of the healthy weekly diet for the church. However, sometimes we feel 
that there is a subject that, for various reasons, requires a separate treatment. And precisely because the Bible isn't an encyclopedia of thematic topics or entries, we need to pause and ask a question, what does the whole scriptures say about a certain topic? And for the, for the next few Sundays, as the exception to the rule, we are going to be adapting this second uh, approach. We are going to be asking the question, what does the whole of scriptures say about marriage, gender, and sexuality. Now, we all come to the subject of sexuality with a degree of unease, concern, confusion, embarrassment, maybe guilt, and shame. But we also come to the subject with certain expectations if we were going around the room, even this morning, which we will not going to do, um, and we would um, ask a question, so what do you expect from the series on sexuality? I bet we, we would get so many different, different answers on this question. Now, what makes the subject of sexuality so difficult to navigate? I think at least two things. Firstly, it is our diversity, even here today. We come from various generations. We come from various church and family traditions. We are used to differently think, talk, or maybe not talk about sexuality. I hope you see how this puts me in a quite a tough spot here today. So I do hope that you will find a way to treat me with grace even if you feel sometimes uneasy or maybe unsettled by some of what you hear in the following weeks, not just today. Or if I manage to lose you completely regarding some of the bits, I still hope you will be able to follow. And that is why I hope to have Q&A after these talks um, where you can ask any clarifying questions that you might have um, about what you heard. So our diversity makes it very difficult sometimes to navigate these things, but I think also our uniqueness makes it sometimes difficult. None of us here are the same in terms of our experience of life and relationships. We all are uniquely, so to speak, wired, including our sexuality. Our backgrounds in the area of sex will be very unique and all of us here have both damaged sexualities and damaging sexualities. By that I mean that we have been hurt and we have caused hurt to others to a lesser or greater degree when it comes to sexuality. But friends, that just reminds us that reminds us that we all are fallen human beings living in a fallen world. So it should guard us from being self-righteous about the whole subject and cause us to really 
humble ourselves in the way we think and in the way we talk about these things. We all have failed, including me, in this area. Well, someone put it really, really well. Here's a quote. The fact of original sin tells us that we do not really have any clear standpoint of experiential purity which to, uh, from which to figure out the topic of sexuality. And so, before we kick off, we need to understand that we desperately need God's grace in Jesus to tackle this topic in the, in the next few weeks. And so before we dive in properly, properly, let me state as clearly as I can my aim and my hope for us in this series. So here is my aim. As we get to know God and ourselves better, I hope that we would grow in our appreciation of Him and of His loving design us, so that we would love him back and long for him more, <clears throat> so that we would be able to serve better those who are struggling or suffering in relevant areas, and thirdly, so that we would be able to defend God's good creation design for a man and a woman against any attacks. So this is my hope and aim for our, our series in the next four or five weeks. So, so keeping, keeping in mind our aim, uh, let me dive in in our today's theme. And our today's theme is God has a good creation design for men and women in this world. Yeah, but where do, we, where do we begin even to think about that? We begin where God begins, in the beginning. And so we turn back to Genesis 1 that we just, just read. No matter how things may work or not work for us in our lives at the moment, we need to firmly stand on the truth that God's perfect creation design his design is perfect, and it is indeed for our good. So God's creation designed for a man and a woman, Genesis 1. Let's read again from verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. <coughs> so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the earth every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, let me back up a few steps by way of, of context of, of Genesis. 
We see that uh, humanity, man and a woman, are created on the sixth day. That's the final creation day. And men and women are created in the same day with the rest of the animals. And so we, we actually see that, yes, man is similar, but also different from the rest of the animals. Similar in a way that the both are created in the sixth day, both create, are created from the same stuff, you know, from the ground, and both reproduce similarly. And God commands that the, the animals and, and, and the humans be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and I think we need to recognize this similarity. And, and no wonder that the scientists have discovered that humans and, for example, chimpanzees have a surprising 98.8% of the DNA. And when I look at some of my friends, I think that sometimes percentage may be even higher. Um, but but none, none of this room, none of this room. But I have a few of them. But so, so humans are created in the same day as, as the rest of the, the animals. But they are different. Only man is said to be created in the image and likeness of God. Different. What the image and likeness of God is, it, it's not spelled out for us explicitly. But what is spelled out here is that man and a woman are created equal. You see, verse 27, A and B, both are created in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Man, it's, it's a singular for humanity. We need both man and, uh, and, and woman to reflect God's image. And so man and woman are created different. Male and female, verse 27, he created them. Now when it comes to God's original design, there is no doubt about it. God intended the humanity to be made up of two sexes that are equal, but opposite. And the difference is not simply biological, you know, it's so that they could have children. Yes, it is so, but not simply biological. Now, I once heard a report of how one guy, his name is Andy, his name is actually Andy, proposed to his girlfriend, and her name is Grace. And he was very brief, and he was very much down to the point. And here is what Andy said to Grace. He said, Grace, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you, and I want to make a lot of ginger babies. And Grace was a redhead. Um, and she said yes. Well, I don't know what, what you think about this proposal. Was it too brief? Was it too technical? Maybe. But indeed, on either side of verse 27, we have God's command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule it under God. But the key seems to be in the middle, in the verse 27. Both men and the woman equally reflect 
the image of God. So perhaps Andy's proposal should have included, I want to reflect the image of God together with you in this world. That'd be a bit better, don't you think? I think so. Now, what are some of the implication, what sort of an application avenues that we can make from Genesis 1 and what we read and what we've heard? I think that the key thing really is what we learn about the humanity. Of course, the, the key thing, of course, is that we learn that God is the creator. He created. It's his world. It's his creation. But when we look at man and woman, what do we learn about what it means to be human? And I really want us to see that what we have here in Genesis is actually fundamental. God's creation of a man and a woman is foundational. It is not a cultural matter or preference. It can't be changed. It can't be molded, um, you know, how we, how we like. It simply doesn't work like that. And yet, this is exactly what's happening. The human identity question is questioned today. Worse, actually, it's attacked. It can be traced back to the Enlightenment, you know, the, the age where the human reason set itself up against God and his revelation. Who is going to define what human is? Is it going to be God or is it going to be me? And this radical individualism says, I am going to define who I am because I have created me. There actually are not, you know, fixed two genders. No, it is all fluid. I was pondering on these things um, part, uh, in the past few weeks very much. And so one day I was walking down the street and I was pondering and writing sermon in my head and etc. 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 And I was doing that as I was walking up the stairs um, on Argetskal Markets. Has anyone been in Argetskal Markets? Probably you have. And they are, you know, I was walking up to um, the toilets. Um, and at men's toilets, uh, men's toilets were occupied, they were, they were being cleaned. But the women's toilets, they, they were occupied. And I must have been carried away by my sermon in my head. So I said, I said to the woman that was, was queuing for me, I said, isn't that good that we had two toilets for men and women? <laughs> and she looked with these big eyes back at me and she said, well, of course, because there are two, only two genders. I was like, praise God. There is a hope. There is a hope. There's only two genders. There is a hope in this world. Um, I found myself thinking God. But friends, how did we end up in such a mess uh, as a society? Um, doubting, attacking the foundational truth that only two genders, two sexes, men and women, male or female. How? In his book, The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self, author Carl Truman, and probably someone before him, calls it the psychological man. The gender for this person, for the psychological man, is no longer defined by God 
or even natural order, like for example, you know, Tao in, in Chinese culture, maybe very can correct me, the way, you know, it's the natural way. Indeed, that the sex should be determined by the person's inner perception, says the psychological man. You know, it's how I feel inside. That's the ultimate reality. And that is, that is why we start to hear things like, I feel like a woman trapped in man's body. Or I identify as Siamese cat and various other versions of it. Now, on the one hand, I want us to be careful here. So let me slightly pause. There is such a thing as gender dysphoria. Now, gender dysphoria describes persisting emotional and personal discomfort of a small minority of individuals. Emphasize small minority who experience the, the, you know, the sense of, the, their sense of gender as being different from their birth sex. <coughs> this is complex personal issue and it calls for empathy and it calls for understanding. And those who struggle in this area of gender dysphoria, they are often confused, they are frightened, and they are humiliated. But these, but this is not, uh, we don't have any, any reliable scientific data to cast light on what is really going on there. But what we are really talking about when we talk about this world and the, the prevailing culture, we are talking about gender ideology. A movement that perhaps was looking to help, you know, these suffering, but has confused everyone else. If initially it was about self-identification, you know, that the people say, no, I, I, I'm gay or lesbian or I'm transgender, then now it has become about the self-perception, perception of the reality itself. And what's important now is not a firm, fixed fact that can be observed, but it's about my feelings and my perception. But what's most troubling today, it is not an individual that needs fixing. That's what's really troubling about the gender ideology. It's not an individual that needs fixing. It is the reality that needs to be fixed around him. But Genesis 1 reminds us of an exactly the opposite. Yes, even, even, even as we read it in light of Genesis 3 and how everything went wrong, Genesis 1 holds for us a plumb line of God's created order and foundational reality for us. Namely, God created man and woman as equal opposites to reflect his glory and to fulfill <coughs> his mandate. So I think that the second thing is, is, is we have to look at is, is dignity by way of application. It's human dignity. What does it mean to be born with dignity? 
So very briefly about that. Every human being is born in this world with inherent dignity because he or she is born as God's image bearer. It simply follows, doesn't it? And how quickly we find ourselves in all kinds of mess when we start to tweak this reality. I had a chat with my fitness group trainer a few weeks ago. So upon learning that, that I'm a pastor, uh, the conversation quickly moves to, to all spiritual things. And it was interesting to learn about his perception of reality. So I presume he's some kind of new age guy, you know, living there somewhere in the cosmos. But, but he said, I think we are no different from animals. That's what he actually said to me. Now, I didn't challenge him immediately about various ethical problems we will find it, uh, you know, ourselves in um, because of it. So, so we, we chatted more about other things. But you know what? I thought to myself, I wouldn't actually be, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that he is actually sympathetic to things like euthanasia. Because if animals are no different, we are no different from animals, it is perfectly fine. It is perfectly fine in his world to uh, ponder killing an elderly granny because he, she's no different from a rat. I mean, I'm being slightly, you know, explicit about these things, but that's a logical conclusion. And friends, we have seen how easy that could be done in history when in our eyes someone loses that image bearer of God. But Genesis 1 and the rest of the Bible treats humans with dignity and inherent value from their conception, emphasize conception, till, till their final breath. And even in burial, actually. So God created a man and a woman as equal opposites to reflect his glory. Both are born with equal dignity in this world, and so there is no place for racism. There is no place for sexism. There is no place for euthanasia, for subjugation of women, and so on. That should flow out of our understanding of who God is and who we are. Now, if Genesis 1, if Genesis 1, in, in Genesis 1 we have uh, the Creator God in the center of everything, then here in Genesis 2, the creation of man in, is, is, is sort of retold from the human perspective, with men and women in the center of uh, attention. So, so we, we didn't read the whole account, but so you, you'll, you'll have to take me for my word for this once. So in Genesis 2, we see that God's, uh, we see God's creation design for, um, for the male and female. It's, it's in their union. It's in the union of difference. So we look, look much closer to a marriage. Union indifference. Well, let, let's meet Ed and Katie. 
if, if you buy, if you're Ed or Katie, you're talking about you, that, it's, it's a hypothetical couple, Ed and Katie. They both come from a loving Christian homes. Uh, from their early days, they have been part of faithful Bible teaching church that also seeks to live out uh, what it preaches. And Ed and Katie, they met each other on the second year of university and they quickly became friends. Soon enough, they discovered that they uh, like each other more than just a friend. They wanted to have sex, but they knew that God had intended sex to be enjoyed only within marriage bounds. And so they didn't sleep with each other until they got married. You could call it a happy marriage. Uh, when they got married, they grew a family of three children. They were involved in a local church where they learned about God and where they served his people and the wider community around them. Now, isn't that, isn't that close to perfect when you hear it? Sorry I didn't mention a house and a dog. That would be really perfect, right? Um, but how do, you, how do you feel about this picture when you hear it? I think we should instinctively recognize it is beautiful. It is good. We should rejoice. But friends, in reality, in reality, our feelings will be much more complicated, I think. There is going to be some sadness and uncertainty as we hear such stories. I'm not sure this is something that I can ever hope for. There is going to be anger and regret. This is something that I almost had, but then I lost it. Well, there might be even cynicism and ridicule. In what fantasy world are you living in? Or in what fantasy world is Ed and Katie living in? Well, the, the key question we should be asking, though, is not how. How do we feel about it? I think the key question is, why do we feel a certain way? Why do I feel a certain way about this picture? And to answer this question, it will take us more than this sermon. It will take us probably the whole series. But here is, here is, a, here is the, the foundational truth. Nevertheless, God intends a man and a woman to be united in difference, in mutually exclusive lifelong commitment to each other and to God. And we call it marriage. To what end? We read to fulfill what we might call a cultural mandate. To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and rule under God over it. And that is why chapter 2, verse 18, we read, it is not good. It is not, for the first time we read in Genesis, something is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now we need to understand that woman wasn't created because Adam was sad and lonely. Maybe you've heard a number of times that for Adam it's not good to be alone because he would be really sad and lonely without Eve. Now let's take again, let's take Anne and Katie. On the wedding day, Pastor might have preached a really powerful sermon on how God has brought Katie into Ed's 
life so that Ed might not be sad and that he might not be lonely. Well, just picture these two many years down the road, Katie ironing Ed's shirts and Ed preparing a wonderful, fully cooked English breakfast for Katie, and two of them sitting friendly by the fireplace and playing Scrabble till they absolutely fall asleep because that's what normally happens to me when I play Scrabble in the evening, just fall asleep. And it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a cozy, beautiful picture, isn't it? Uh, of, of two people being faithful to each other and accompanying each other for the whole of their life. But it's wrong. It's wrong. Adam wasn't lonely. He wasn't lonely. Adam had God. How can you be lonely? The woman was created because Adam needed her to fulfill God's command. <coughs> Adam needs the equal opposite to fulfill God's command. Because remember, it's not just the biological difference that's important. There is something about male and female together reflecting the image of God in this world. And we can sense that from the way Adam reacts to his wife. Now here's a quick, quick summary of marriage, chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. We see the creation of marriage, we see the celebration of marriage, and we see the consummation of marriage. We see creation and, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. And we see the celebration, we see Adam's reaction, that the man said, this is at last the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And then we have <coughs> consummation. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and fall fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Now if I speak on this passage in weddings, than I do. I tend to point out that for two people to get married, there is no need for a church building, really. Uh, there's no need for the white dress, or any clothes for that matter, that were naked. But at which point I really pause and I thank everybody for considering putting on something on this beautiful day, a <laughs> uh, wonderful occasion. Because you see, we are living not in the perfect world in Genesis 1 and 2. We are living in Genesis 3 world. God's good design for marriage between a man and a woman, it is rather simple, don't you think? It is of two equal but complementary beings of the opposite sex. And verse 24 being a key, it involves a public declaration, leaving father and mother. It involves permanent relationships, holding fast, clean, holding fast to his wife. And it involves uh, a physical intimacy, and they shall become one flesh. 
And therefore, marriage is not a cultural tradition that can be, uh, you know, done away with as people want. Uh, Jesus, Jesus refers back to it in Genesis as an absolutely foundational truth. Have you not read what the Creator, what the Creator intended from the living It's not a truth of one particular culture or one, uh, you know, a particular time. And Christians' view of sex is as something of a, a much, much higher value. Uh, it's not just physical, it's emotional, it's, it's psychological, yes, it's physical. Now, we will come back to marriage and sex next week, I suppose. But still, I think that it's worth to spend a couple of, um, um, a few minutes or so, in, in trying to apply some of what we've learned about marriage. And so, the purpose of marriage, it is a lifelong service under God. Now, do you remember our series in 1 Timothy? You might not, but it, it was a long time ago in autumn. But in our series, one of the key changes that Paul wanted to see in the church was that the church would turn around and become outward-looking. The church in Ephesus was very inward-looking. Who's in, who's out, who's better, who's more godly, who's more righteous. And same goes for marriage, my friends. God's purpose for marriage never was for two people just minding their own little world and business and playing Scrabble. Scrabble is good, I love Scrabble. But it's not the purpose uh, for marriage. No, God's purpose for marriage always has been for the two people to join together in the service of God. In making God known in this world. Why? Because they were image bearers of God. So if you're considering getting married anytime in the future, please, please make sure that your spouse is a Christian. I think it's a natural flow out of, out of Genesis accounts. Your wife and husband or husband must be a Christian. Why on earth would you ever marry someone who doesn't share God's heart and purpose for this world, it will make your life considerably more difficult. My friend, it might even ruin your faith altogether. So that's a, a little uh, word of warning. The purpose of marriage, two people joining their lives in the service of God. And secondly, the pattern of marriage. And, and we went through it, so, so just a, a quick recap. It's, it's a public, it's a public def uh, declaration. You know, a word of warning verse for dating. You know, the guy must be ready to publicly stand up and leave his parents. It's a public declaration, so there's no place for cohabitation, etc., etc., of course. But there's also no foundation or no basis for exclusive relationships if a man hasn't been able to publicly declare that he's leaving his parents in marriage, in, in, in marriage to his, his fiancée or his wife. And also those who are married, 
They also merit sometimes, especially in the early years, they find it really difficult to leave their, their extended family, their parents. It can happen either financially or in terms of their influence of opinion. And in, in one culture, it might be more difficult than another, but leaving must be done. A public declaration is a pattern for marriage. A permanent relationships, yes. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. In, a, in an ideal world, it is a lifelong commitment. That's God's pattern for marriage. And only within this exclusive permanent relationships, sex can be enjoyed safely. We'll not go now into various unused about safe sex, etc. There's nothing safe about any other options. Only within this permanent relationships, in this context, sex can be really safely enjoyed. Well, as I said, we will spend more, much more, on thinking about this, about these things in the next few weeks. This was really an introductory uh, talk or uh, sermon today about God's design for men and women and male and female in this creation. But just as I close, um, the word, the word on, on, on the gospel, on the hope, <coughs> we need to look at Jesus as we even think about these things. You know, I mentioned we are different, we are unique, uh, we come from different backgrounds, with different experiences, we carry quite possibly guilt and shame uh, in our lives. So we need to look at Jesus when we think about this. Just think for a moment. Jesus publicly declared his faithfulness to us. He just celebrated that in Easter on the cross. He publicly declared, I'm going to, God is faithful to his people. I am going to be faithful to his people. And what he did on the cross, he, he washed us clean. He washed us clean from every and all mistakes. Past, present, future. So we, as we dive in more into the subject of sexuality and gender in the next few weeks, let us keep looking at Jesus. Let us let us bathe in the gospel as it as as it as it be. We really need Jesus to go through uh, uh, with this. Uh, let's pray briefly. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being a good creator God that in his overflowing love created um, us, even us, men and women, equal but different, equal but opposites. Thank you, Father, your good, good purposes and design was to reflect who you are in this world. As we, as your image bearers, uh, get to know you and make you known in this world. And Father, we do ask for your grace and for your forgiveness, even as we begin, begin reflecting on our own lives in light of your perfect word. Grant us grace to cling to Jesus as our perfect, perfect bridegroom,
as we think about um, who we are and how we should live in this world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not sure whether there are any instant questions, so just not if you would want to ask any question about what you've heard. Uh, we can have a little sort of minute break and you can ask any questions, preferably about what you've heard, but even if it's something that was not addressed, I would, I would want to answer and then point where we might be thinking about that in the future. Yes, Marcy. Do you have? Uh, can we? Can, uh, can I ask questions that I have for this week, next week? Well, have a go. <laughs> uh, well, I I have not formulated, and I usually tend to kind of not point at exactly what I mean. Right. So is it okay if I ask it next week? Yes, of course. It's it's very much okay if you ask it next week. You're you have a whole week. Okay. Any, anyone, anyone, any question about what you had? I, yes, oh yes, great. Uh, you mentioned, you said something about um, not having exclusive relationship prior to marriage. So it mm -hmm. sounded like dating one-on-one -on -one prior to marriage. Yeah. I know, I know, I, I know I'll get myself in so much trouble about this. You know, yes, I mean, and it, it is a question about, again, you know, it's a question about the reality. I mean, when I first uh, tried to address this many years ago, when I was doing youth work, I got such a great feedback from so many of those who were angry with me. Um, so, but, I mean, in light of God's revelation, we, we must adjust our perception, right? So, um, if exclusivity comes with, with the marriage, you know, a man leaving his biological family and then clinging to his wife and, and they form the, the, the exclusive relationships, that by implication means that dating, by definition, is an open relationship. So, I'm, I'm open might not be the best phrase. Uh, I, I know I got in trouble with another uh, term yesterday. I'm not going to mention that. It's too much. Um, uh, what I, in my most sort of radical thing, I'd say if a guy in the dating relationships even never intends to ponder leaving his parents and marrying this girl, uh, um, he has no right to claim this girl exclusively for himself. She's, she's perfectly free to go to cinema with another guy. And the guy has no claim on her in that sense. So, and, and it just shows how very so messed up we are, right? Because the guy really treats his girlfriend, you know, as an absolute exclusive, you know, even if they're not living together. So, you know, it, it, a lot of mess. Yeah. A lot of mess. It, did, did that sort of begin to answer the question? Yes, it, it does. I know it's, it sounds like crazy from the world's perspective, but that's a simple thing. And it makes the whole relationship really difficult. You know, there's a tension. There is an exclusivity, but there's no commitment. And kind of, yeah. Marcy, you're, oh, yeah, you're going to try. Well, have a go. 
We can, you can't wait a week, right? No, I Go for it. So basically, the way I see it, I know that marriage is compli complicated. I have you know, no idea it's very simple. How, 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 how complicated it is. But for me, it is actually very simple in the sense that you choose a partner and you well, stick to the partner. A woman. A woman. Yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, for me, now, of course, a woman. Uh, and you just stick to the partner and you get through all the ups and downs together. It's not more difficult than yes. that. Of course, it won't be easy. I can tell you that you're not married. Yes, 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 yes. yes. It's, it's simple and it's complicated. And we'll dive in more in, in, in the following weeks that, that it, it can get quite complicated in marriages. Marcy. Yes, I, I, I get that. It's going to get complicated. But is there going to be, is there going to be a question? Well, no, but yes. So basically, in one hand, we have that. Basically, that. What well, it's just a decision that you make. Yes. It's not more difficult than that, actually. Or is it? No. Um, I, mean, I, 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 I would easily be able to say, uh, well, person X or Y, I'm committed to you. Hmm. But today's world doesn't work. It seems to work like that. Yes. And how do you call, call as, as a man or as a woman? Good question. How do you deal with that? Like, you know? Yes. And I, I think that the subject you are bringing up, it really is going to. We, we'll, we'll try to cover that kind of sense or, or feeling about this. We're going to try to cover because within a, personally, a few no, weeks. I would, uh, not I would not like to be in this open uh, relationship. Yeah, yeah. Open is a bad word, sorry. <laughs> open no, mind, I, open relationships is yes. very bad. What do I do with an open relationship? I date someone in order to see if we work out and that's it. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. I, I think I'm going to probably put you on pause here. And just to say, this kind of frustration, it is so un understandable, right? Because you almost, from the human, humanly speaking, you almost can be desperate, you know? Is that, is that theory actually working in practice? Can it work in practice? And so I'm, I'm quite keen in that series to say that actually it does work in practice. Because of God and his help, um, it can work in practice. Uh, but the frustration is so, so understandable. You know, even I think, I already, I think sometimes people think that I'm already grandpa, coming from a different age, you know, from the 80s, kind of the post-Soviet and Soviet times where things were, anyways, not even that. Erica? I've met Christian couples where, for example, one or both might be serving, and they've been, like I've also heard stories, there are Christian couples who aren't married yet, but have been dating for a long time. And sometimes one or the other can't make a decision if they should marry, like if this person is the right one to marry. So what would you say in these cases? If, if, if there is a prolonged dating and one of the... It, it's like, I don't know, like what? Maybe the question is more, maybe you and mother are married, but how did you or how would you advise people who are not yet married but possibly dating how to decide if this is the one that God 
Wow. <laughs> what a responsibility. <laughs> no, let me, guys, well, let me, let me just uh, open slightly off and share uh, just very briefly this uh, our story, our testimony. I'll just very briefly, no details, sorry. Um, so when I became Christian, you know, I came from uh, sort of a non-Christian background, you know, a student like you guys, second, second year, I became Christian. And so I joined the church, a big church, and many girls there. And I, I said to God, right, I want to just, can, I, can the whole relationship can be just completely put on pause? I don't, I don't want uh, any of that stuff. Uh, but at the same time, the, sort of my inner dialogue with God was, if, if there is, if there is um, a girl, if you, if you give me a girl, let, let let she be the one, let she be the one. Uh, and so, sort of fast forward, um, meet, meeting Mandra um, in the church. Um, I suppose also kind of serving alongside, not fairly intensely, but just being in the ministry somewhat alongside. I was asking the question, is she the one? But then I remembered what God, what I was asking God, you know, and, and it kind of was sort of my, um, Yes, of course I liked her, right? It was like I'm forcing this relationship, right? Uh, and so I quickly wanted to understand, very quickly, I think we were seeing each other like, you know, going to the bus stop or something for a six month or so, or maybe less, and then, um, yeah. And I quickly wanted to understand whether, whether there is any chance that, that we could get engaged. And so I, I got that sort of response, and I, yeah, I just I just went for it. So I just went for it, and she said yes. Um, yeah, and um, again, I wasn't interested. Well, that's my personal story. So I wasn't interested in just dating endlessly um, because I, yeah, I didn't feel it would be fair. I, it's not a rule. Again, it's just my my story, and and so you sort of make the step, but it, the funny thing is it, eventually that the girl chooses, right? We, men, we sort of pride ourselves that we choose, no, it's not really. We sort of make a step and they say either yes or no, so actually they choose. It's funny, isn't it? Uh, but, and it's exciting. I don't know how people do that now in the age of online dating and everything. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? Sorry, I, I Probably not the answer your question, but um, right, guys. Um, many, many more Q and A's in the next uh, next few weeks. But let's just ponder, yeah. Let's ponder on God's God's good design for marriage and His purpose and pattern for marriage as the foundational truth. As we from there keep thinking, and addressing various other other subjects, sexuality, and singleness, and all other things, right?